All right. Welcome. Welcome to the Biblos Network this this Thursday. What is it? August the 25th. We are coming to you here from the Biblos studio. We pray that you are enjoying the great blessings of God where you are at. God is so good. He's great. He's greatly to be praised. Praise the Lord. I love that greeting. It is an apostolic greeting. Isaiah said the day would come when God's people would greet one another with that greeting. And so we greet you with that same that same greeting, and we're glad you could join us today. Um, there has been a lot taking place. I know here we are getting geared up for our annual WPF Summit in Pigeon Forge. We are looking forward to that. We've had great services. Um, things are cooling a little bit, just a little bit. And we're heading into my favorite time of year. And I trust where you are, God is helping you and pouring out his grace in your life. Tonight's session, I don't know how long it will be, but I do want to talk about a certain topic. It's been an interesting week. There's been a lot of dialogue and a lot of feedback on Biblos, and I want to take some time. It, it spurred my thinking to um, address a topic I think that is very relevant and that will help people. Um, I want to talk today about the man in the arena, the man in the arena. It's a, it's a famous, a famous uh, poem, or rather a speech, I guess, that Theodore Roosevelt gave when he was president. And many of you have heard this, but I'll just I'll read it to you here at the outset of this session. This is how it goes. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold, and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. <laughs> the man in the arena. Theodore Roosevelt was probably writing this because of being inundated with critics uh, on all sides. The office of the presidency is obviously just such an office. But there's a greater arena than Teddy Roosevelt's arena, and it is, it is the cosmic arena. And there's a greater man than Teddy Roosevelt. And that is Jesus Christ. And there's no greater champion who bled, sweated, fought valiantly, and contended for that which was right and good and holy, and triumphed. His deepest battles, his darkest moments, there in this arena of humanity, in the arena of redemption, he fought for us. I want to take a little while and talk a bit about that <clears throat> because as we pursue truth and we try to find out what is true, you're going to find out there are many forces that come against you. 
And Biblos is dedicated to contending for the truth, not just contending, but earnestly contending for the truth. And we are living in a postmodern day that is intent on tearing down apostolic distinctives. It, it can range from just simply undermining holiness. Holiness is not necessary. If left, if left alone and not checked, and there's not a voice of clarity, it will move into giving, finances, tithe and offering. It will move further into the necessity of Jesus' name, baptism. It will move into receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, speaking with other tongues. It will move into gender distinctives until finally they will say, you don't need church buildings. You don't need any leadership in the church. I am my own temple. The Lord is my shepherd. We don't need any of that stuff. And it is the death knell of churches. And there are many, many churches that have gone under because of this kind of error. So these are some of the forces that that we contend with today. I want to take a moment and talk a little bit about that. Jesus wins the battle. He comes to earth. He robes himself in flesh. God robes himself in flesh. And he pays the ultimate price. He gives his life for, for all of mankind. In doing so, he redeems us. We become sons and daughters of God. We receive the adoption of sons. And that's the birth of the apostolic church. That's Acts chapter 2 and the whole book of Acts. Here's something interesting. There's an Old Testament arena where we can see a lot of these themes played out. The Bible says that the law is the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And one key to interpreting Scripture is to know that the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. Jesus told them on the road to Emmaus that the Moses and the Psalms, they testified of him. And he told them, search the scriptures. In them you have eternal life, and they testify of me. So when you read about the man, the ultimate man, Jesus Christ is the ultimate man. He is the ultimate champion. Calvary is his arena. And all of heaven and earth waited to see what God would do. And he won. He won the battle at Calvary. In the Old Testament, we see a lot of the themes there in Samson. When Samson goes to Dagon's temple, you know, there's so many thematic elements here. All of these Old Testament messiahs were forerunners and leading up to the Messiah, Chachmosheah, the, the greatest of messiahs or anointed ones. And Samson obviously is a very hollow shell of what Jesus Christ would be, but yet we can see glimpses of Jesus through Samson. For instance, um, Jesus fought redemption's battle all by himself. His brethren gave him up. The Jews gave him up, turned him over to the Romans to be killed. You know, when Samson sets fire to the fields and he ties the fox's tails together, he goes off into the mountains and the, the Philistines come and they say, if, if you don't turn him over, we'll kill you. And so his brethren go and get him. They talk Samson into giving himself up. They take him to the Philistines. You can see his brethren uh, 
giving him up to the ungodly, to the Gentiles. You can see a foreshadowing of Jesus being given up by the Jews to the Romans. Uh, Later on, when he fights by himself at the battle with the, the jawbone of the donkey, if you can get that mental picture of Samson alone fighting off the Philistine hordes, that is exactly what happened at Calvary. At Calvary, it was another mountain. It was another place where the forces gathered themselves together. And these forces were not just physical forces. They weren't just the Sanhedrin of the Romans, but they were spiritual forces. The Bible says that that he conquered principalities and powers. He spoiled them and he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them at the cross. When did that happen? Well, spiritually, he overcame them. He closed out the Old Testament. He fulfilled the Old Testament law. He became a great high priest. He became the Lamb of God. And he conquers. He conquers death. He conquers the grave. He conquers hell. He conquers every every devil, every principality there. And if you can see them rushing him at Calvary, if you can see them coming after him to destroy him, Samson is a, is a mirror of that. As they run at Samson, they attack him. They spiritually, in the spirit world, they came at Jesus to attack him. Samson won the battle alone. Jesus won the battle alone. He conquered by himself. In the book of Isaiah, he says that I looked around for one that would stand up for the truth. I did not find any, so my own arm, it brought salvation unto me. And my fury, it upheld me. So this is the man that comes from Basra. This is the cosmic warrior. Um, He comes dripping in blood. His garments are stained and dyed red. This is the warrior coming back from redemption's battle. And you'll you'll find that in the book of Isaiah. It's, It's a fascinating metaphor and picture, prophetic image of the warrior that would conquer every enemy that would try to hold us captive. Even to the point where when he's finished with that battle, Samson, he he says, I'm going to die of thirst. This battle has been so great. And on the cross, Jesus mirrors this. He says, I thirst. The parallels are very striking. Uh, if If you see that, you see, uh, there's so much I could go into. Um, some of it might be a little far out for some people, but when you lay the book of Acts over the top of this, it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of redemption. When you see Samson go to Dagon's temple, it is a foreshadowing of us receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. The Redeemer literally goes into the old temple and he tears down the old life. He he comes and he labors and he works and and they mock him and they ridicule him. In there, you see the mockery and the ridicule of Jesus Christ as they mock him. They make sport of him. He comes into the temple and he tears down Dagon's temple. And Jesus Christ came down to tear down that old life, that old life that was filled with sin and wickedness and unrighteousness. He tears down that temple and he is interested in building a new temple. Jesus wants to build a new temple. Samson came to the old temple. Jesus came to the old temple and he conquered it. And there's this phrase at the end of, at the end of Samson's 
life where it says that that he died with the Philistines. You know, the Bible says Jesus died with the thieves. He was numbered with the transgressors. Samson's phrase, let me die with the Philistines, is mirrored in Jesus as he as he dies the death of of a sinner and a transgressor hanging between two thieves. And he's numbered with them. And then this little phrase that says that he slew more in his death than in his life. The Christological themes here are mind-boggling. I'm talking about the arena. This is the arena. Samson was an Old Testament arena. Jesus is a New Testament arena. He slew more in his death than in his life. And in that, we see the redemptive work of Christ that, that Jesus did more in his death than he did in his life. He healed many people in his life, but he healed many more in his death. When by his stripes we are healed, and through his redeeming blood we can lay hands on the sick and they recover. And his spirit is not limited to one body and one vessel of flesh, but he is now, that spirit is being poured out upon all flesh. And millions, even billions, can have the spirit of Jesus Christ in them. And so in his death, he is greater than in his life. And Samson's, that phrasing there is very messianic in that Jesus would do more in his death than in his life. So praise God. That's the arena. And the reason I'm saying that is because this is about contending for the, for the faith, contending for the truth. How do we know what we believe? How do we navigate the different ideas and the ideologies? Um, there's a lot to that. First of all, I'm going to say the scripture is paramount. The scripture is our ultimate authority. The word of God will teach us. Now, when I say that, you have to rightly divide the word of truth. And there are people that don't know how to rightly divide the word of truth. And there's a lot of doctrines that are popping up. What are we going to believe? How are we going to formulate our worldview? And so what are some of the things? I, I've, I've, the last, this last week I've given thought to several doctrines that try to pass themselves off as truth. If you're going to read the Bible, you need to know that the Bible is about progressive revelation. God takes very um, seed form doctrines and he builds on them throughout the whole body of Scripture. So the name of Jesus is revealed over time until the, the fullness of time has come and this great revelation is given. So the name of Jesus at first is, you know, the name of God is known as Elohim and all of the Old Testament wordings and, and the Old Testament names of that God, they did not know him in his fullness. So he began to gradually and progressively reveal his name to them. Eventually he became known as Jehovah he then all of the Jehovah add-ons, Jehovah Sidkenu, Jehovah Shalom, um, Jehovah Rapha, all, all of the, the Jehovah titles as attribute by attribute, God begins to reveal his nature to his people until finally it culminates into the greatest name, a name above all names. That's the name of Jesus Christ. And we have that revelation of that name. And so it builds. That building is called what Isaiah calls it in Isaiah 28, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. Now, a lot of people don't know how to study the Bible that way. 
they try to study it in a very linear, straightforward, um, empirical manner. They try to look at context, and often the context is just the couple of verses, maybe the chapter around it, and people will try to formulate doctrines on that. And if you look at this just by a few verses surrounding it or um, or by a chapter, you can miss the fullness of the revelation of what God is trying to give to you. So, for instance, the oneness of God is revealed all through the Bible. And the fact that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are in Jesus Christ, the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and we are complete in that, that can be missed. And because people want to grab isolated verses and focus on them without using the extra surrounding corpus of Scripture in many different places. And so they come up with the doctrine of the Trinity. They look through the lens of the Trinity. And once you look through a certain lens or a paradigm, every verse that you read then on is interpreted according to that paradigm. Well, whenever you read about the oneness of God or read about God being one, if you come to a difficult passage to understand, you shouldn't look at it through a three-person paradigm. You should look at it through a one-God paradigm. You know it doesn't mean more than one divine being because the greatest commandment is Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So instead of trying to work from a three-person paradigm and prove that there is a threeness, work from a one-God paradigm and interpret it through that lens. Probably the most controversial subjects that we've dealt with here at Biblos are the oneness of God and tithe and offering. Those two things. People hate those two topics. I should say the devil hates those topics. And critics hate those topics. And let me let me add something on here. You know, the scripture is our supreme authority. Following the scripture, there's a multitude of counselors. So there are great men, great women who have given their lives, who have interpreted the scripture and have spent thousands, if not millions, of hours interpreting. And they have come to great revelations and great truths. Great churches have been built. Oftentimes, God is going to give you a pastor. He's going to give you a leader. That's, he's going to work through that ministry in your life. Now, there's a great movement to dismiss pastors, to dismiss the fivefold ministry, to get rid of it, to even get rid of church buildings. Because they say we all just need to love God and just feed homeless people. And that's all the church needs to do. Just help people. That's it. And it is a trap. It is a it's a trap of Satan to try to destroy the church and the great efficacious work that it does. Um, so God will give you counselors. He will give you people around you that are solid, that are built on Scripture, that have decades of experience. I'm not saying that experience trumps Scripture. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that the Scripture, which is primary, will be backed up, and it will work. It will work. People have put it into practice for years, and the gospel has reached around the globe because of the efforts of amazing men and amazing women, sacrifices that are simply mind-boggling. And so there will be people. A second way to interpret Scripture is, is the multitude of counselors who have fought false doctrines, who have stood the test of time, and there are great churches and great ministries in place because of that. Another way to find out what truth is, is the spirit in which it's given. Oftentimes, 
people that have the spirit of error will fly into a rage. They will use tools that godly people we don't use. They, they'll use sarcasm. They'll use manipulative, manipulative phrasings and terminologies. They will try to belittle you as you're trying to show them the word of God. I can remember years ago, my grandfather was talking with a group of men, and I never, I never forgot what it looked like to watch him graciously communicate with him. And the absolute mockery and disrespect they heaped upon that great man. And he just smiled through it all and <clears throat> stood firmly on what he knew was right. And the Lord showed me something that day. It is not just what you say. It is also how you say it. And the scripture teaches that in this New Testament era that we are founded and built upon the love of God. So let your speech be with grace always, seasoned with salt. That's one of our admonitions in the epistles. Um, some people got that backwards. <laughs> they, they let their speech be with salt <laughs> with a little grace sprinkled in. What that means is the overwhelming body of work should be with grace. And if there is going to be a little bite to it, let it be a sprinkling. Let it be a little seasoning of salt. Let there be just a, a tinge of a bite to it so that it, it gives a savor. It doesn't bring death. People need to learn that, that you can get your point across without being ugly and without stooping to name-calling or ad hominem attacks. Um, so these people were men and women in the arena. They fought. They fought for what was right. I'll give you an example of, of what generations previous to us have fought. There was a time in, in Pentecostal history where the latter rain movement became a big deal. The 1940s, the, the charismatic movement began to explode. The gifts of the Spirit, the working of the Spirit, very spooky, very mysterious, what we call woo-woo. <laughs> woo-woo Pentecost. Everybody's got a vision. Everybody's got a dream. Everybody's seeing spirits. They might live like the devil, but boy, they see those angels and they see those demons to the point that it even superseded scripture. They believed that they prayed so much that oil came out of their fingertips and blood crosses would appear on their foreheads. And everybody had a word. Everybody had a tongue. Everybody had a, a miracle. And, and people would, would, would uh, take their entire financial portfolios and, and liquidate them and bring them in and, give them to preachers who told them to do it. And it financially ruined people. It destroyed people. Um, all kinds of abuses. And because of that, that 1940s, 1950s, 60s generation had to stand against it and push back on it and say, we will not go overboard in the gifts of the Spirit. We will live by the Word of God. And they had to strike a balance there. And they had to stand firm. And there were a lot of good men that got swept out with that error and with that false doctrine. People even went too far. There were people that were so sick of the abuse of the gifts of the Spirit that they taught their, the gifts of the Spirit don't operate today. And it's just word. And you weren't supposed to worship, clap, shout, dance, run the aisles, nothing. 
um, no emotional display of any kind. And so some people went so far, they threw the baby out with the bathwater. And that's a common thing. Whenever you are deal, dealing with the spirit of error, the temptation is once you react to it, the pendulum swings far the other way. Martin Luther did that with works in his grace alone through faith alone doctrine. Throw out all action and all works. And you get the Protestant message that you don't have to do anything to be saved today. Um, well, some people in Pentecost did that. They threw out the gifts of the Spirit instead of striking a balance of that it will be Spirit and truth together. Instead of that, they threw out all of the spiritual moving and they swung to a very dead, emotionless, dry format. And there are some churches that are still built on that premise. And it's, it's unfortunate because they do uh, deny the charismatic moving of the Holy Ghost. It comes from the word charis or love, charity. It's a great and powerful influence in the church. And just because someone abused it doesn't mean it's not valid. You just have to strike the balance. And so again, the multitude of counselors and experience and prayerfully seeking after God. So how are we going to find out what we believe and what we don't believe? Well, if, if someone is stooping to name calling and, and they're saying that they're hurling insults at you and and giving you ultimatums, that's not the Spirit of Christ. That is <clears throat> a novice in the Scripture, if they're even in the Scripture at all. God doesn't use those tools. But the Bible says, in meekness we instruct those that oppose themselves. So sarcasm and passive-aggressive maneuvering, those are not the tools of the man of God or the woman of God. But grace and sincerity... And one, one thing is you don't attack people. You, you, don't, you don't say you are bad or you did this or you think this or you did that. It's, it's not a good idea to personalize when you are contending for the faith, when you're in the arena. It's better to come against a doctrine. You're not fighting the person. You're fighting the error. So proponents of this doctrine, um, the doctrine itself is wrong. This doctrine is um, destroying faith. You deal with the doctrine, not the people. So a key trait when you are contending for the faith is don't fight people, fight doctrines, fight spirits. Our battle is not flesh and blood, but it's with principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. So when you contend for the faith, you should be marked by your grace. Yes, you can be firm. You can even get mad. Jesus got mad at times, but there's no sin. There's no there's no ill will. There's no malice that's a part of that. So those are not tools in the man of God, the woman of God's toolbox. So when you're in the arena, remember, when you're fighting and contending for the faith, remember these things. Scripture, multitude of counselors, the way you handle yourself, the spirit in which you are speaking a thing. These are important. These are, these are very important. You can often know a person's error by the spirit in which they say it. You can even say the right thing in the wrong spirit. There are people who preach tithe and offering, and they preach it so ugly and so forcefully. They make it a thing about force. You know, the New Testament's not about force. The New Testament is about grace. And it's not force that overcomes sin. It doesn't say where sin did abound force doth much more abound. It says where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. So um, 
the Ten Commandments that we follow, they were forced in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, they become promises that when you receive the Spirit of God, you will not commit adultery. You will not steal. This is great news. God's empowering Spirit will fill you. And you will not do these things, not out of force, but out of love. The Bible says that when that spirit of adoption comes into your heart and you cry, Abba, Father, you are no more a servant, but a son. Meaning, you don't have to be forced to do anything. You are a son. You do things out of love and out of relationship and out of grace. So, I find that many people can have very strong opinions about the Scripture, but when you get into the arena and you test your ideas and you test your strong opinions and feelings... The arena makes the difference. It changes. The scriptures go from an academic exercise to a reality, and things will come to life in the scripture that you could never have fully understood until you begin to work for God. And so looking at the lives of men and women who have sweated, who have bled, sometimes even died for what they believed in, It doesn't mean that human activity is our barometer for truth. It means that before we start discarding things and we start throwing things out, we might want to take a close look at people who paid the ultimate price and who scoured the scriptures in previous generations. Um, There is a move afoot to get rid of tithe and offering. There is a move afoot to do that. The ultimate goal and aim of the majority of them is to get rid of the church itself. They want to redefine what the church means which is another way of saying get rid of all church buildings, get rid of formal worship, get rid of corporate worship, just stay home and help people. And that is another way of saying destroy churches. There's a movement afoot to eliminate church attendance. You know, we don't forsake the assembling together of ourselves together as the custom of some is. And so much the more as you see the day approaching, we go to church. The corporate worship of the body of Christ is irreplaceable. Such power, such an anointing that is unleashed in that atmosphere where miracles can happen and people are edified and strengthened. In the Old Testament, they had their synagogues. Um, but an amazing thing in the book of Ezekiel, it says that in that last day, uh, and you are dispersed throughout the nations, I will be little. I will be a little sanctuary in the cities in which you are dispersed. It's a beautiful promise that talks about the fact that God would have representation in cities all over the world as the people of God are dispersed. These are churches and we build churches and we contend for churches. They become lighthouses. They become places where people can be baptized and filled with the Holy Ghost. They can learn the word of the Lord. They can have a community of faith. And the underlying goal of this is of, of, of the critics of great New Testament teaching is ultimately to destroy churches. They may not know that, but that is where it goes. Um, and what you'll hear a lot is that's not in the New Testament. That's not in the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't talk about that. And that's a big deal to a lot of people. And of course, we want to follow New Testament teaching. We do not want to add one thing to what the scripture teaches us. And anything that looks like it might contradict their doctrine in the New Testament, they dismiss it. They summarily dismiss it. They interpret it through a different lens. Uh, This last week, last two weeks, uh, people have been really, really working against 
many of them four, overwhelmingly four, but there's a few vocal ones that fight against tithe and offering. And they say it's Old Testament. It doesn't matter. We don't do that anymore. It's all under Levi. Well, it's not under Levi. It predated Levi in Abraham. And Hebrews 7 teaches us, and I mentioned this, that this is the priesthood of Melchizedek, which abides forever. It's an unchangeable priesthood. But that idea, it's Old Testament, it's only to the Levites, um, it all falls apart because there's a lot of things the New Testament doesn't spell out. For instance, polygamy. Um, in the New Testament, there's no verse that says you can't marry more than one person. Um, now, we know that that's a sin. Jesus taught male and female created, created he them. But, you know, critics can say, and they have, there are people that contend for polygamy that say, look, Abraham had more uh, than one concubine, and David had multiple wives, and Israel had multiple wives, and we get to the New Testament, and there's no verse in the New Testament that says that you can't be polygamous. Now, I know a bishop <clears throat> is supposed to be the husband of one wife, but that's bishops. That's not everybody else. And they will hone in and push a distortion and a perversion of the Scripture that was never supposed to be there, and it's not New Testament. Um, cross-dressing. The only place the Scripture deals with cross-dressing is Deuteronomy 22.5. But there's an army of people ready to rise up and say, that's Levitical. That's Old Testament. It does not apply to us today. And so women can wear pants. Men can wear dresses. And there's nothing you can say about it because we're all free in Christ. Well, uh, that's not right. It is an abomination to the Lord. But learning what is Old Testament, what is New Testament, how the dynamic interplay works. The scripture is line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. To insist that something is only defined by one or two verses surrounding it is to deny this. The Bible doesn't say that his word would be just one line and only here and um, only one precept. But it would be here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept. If we don't get it that way, the Bible says we will go and fall backwards and be broken, snared, and taken. That's in Isaiah 28. If you do get it right, then with stammering lips and another tongue, God will speak, which is the infilling of the Holy Ghost. And there is an army of people ready to fight that, that you do not need to speak in tongues when you get the Holy Ghost. And they have all of their data collected. Well, if you go just on one portion of Scripture, you can, you can fight against the doctrine of receiving the Holy Ghost to the point where they say the Holy Ghost isn't even for us today. There's whole denominations built on that. And there's no verse in the New Testament that says that you have to speak in tongues. Show me one verse. Show me one verse that says that. Well, it doesn't. Isaiah 28 says, with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak. Um... Psalms says, out of the mouth of babes, he has ordained strength. David said, my heart rejoiced, my tongue was glad. Here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept. In the book of Acts, they all received the Holy Ghost and spoke with other tongues. At Cornelius' house, they did it. At the, the, uh, the disciples of John did it in Acts chapter 19. So we, we gather these scriptures together and the picture becomes clear. Line upon line, precept upon precept. This is how doctrines are formed. 
it's not cherry picking verses and trying to insist that Jesus was only speaking to Pharisees or it's just Levitical because if you're going to do that and not capture the spirit of the law, you're going to come up with distortion and perversion and false doctrines. And when you look at the scripture through the lens of truth and the great truths of the apostolic church that have been handed down by generation after generation that have contended for the faith, you will find that the church works. Jesus' name works. The infilling of the Holy Ghost speaking with other tongues, it works. Holiness and gender distinction, it works. And tithe and offering, it works. Those things are coming under attack increasingly. And it's not a new thing. Um, the devil's always been attacking and people have always made errors. But they stood against the latter reign. They stood against the charismatic movement, which came forth from that. They Later on in my generation, we have stood against the emergent movement. And we will continue to contend for the great promises of God. Um, one last thing I'll mention is that many times the people that contend for these things, they are the least qualified to contend for them. Generations that were brilliant, that formed Bible colleges, that, that sent out thousands of missionaries around the world. Now anybody with a laptop and a little bit of spare time can spout whatever they want to. And they can point to this and point to that, and they can undermine the faith of people who are not adept in the word of God. And that is one reason we created Biblos, is to help push back on that narrative, to hopefully provide some clarity, and to do it with grace, to edify, never to tear down. We're not going to speak it to tear people down. We're just simply going to contend for the doctrine and for the wonderful truth of the word of God. So there's nothing like the apostolic church and the apostolic people. They are the greatest people in the world. They are the people of God. They are baptized in his name and filled with his spirit. And by God's grace, we are going to go to heaven together. We're going to build churches along the way, and we're going to build lighthouses all around the world, and the gospel is going to fill the whole earth. I hope that helps you today. I hope it's a blessing to you. Look to the man in the arena. Not Roosevelt, Jesus Christ. Look to the men and women that gave their lives for him. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. There are great men and women who have followed Christ and have done great things for God. Follow their examples. Study the word of God. Look at what works and have revival where you are. God bless you and God keep you. God cause his face to shine upon you. God be gracious unto you and give you peace. Until next time.